0: I want to just, uh, to, to all of you, because you know there's a lot of transition going on right now, I want to say thank you for the grace that you've given us as a staff and as a church. Uh, we, we, usually don't, we usually don't go this long, our, our, our services are usually shorter, so thank you for that, thank you for making room for that. Um, I, also, I also want to say I'm a little, I'm a little perturbed, I'm a little angry, okay, and, and here's why, because and I, let me just take a moment to speak to you elementary teachers, Okay, I'm not sure if you know this, but fourth graders cannot create a life-size duck out of Modge Podge and cardboard (laughs) on their own. Okay, and so usually on a Sunday morning, I like to get up and start trimming the fat off of my sermon. Um, But because of that wonderful assignment, um, that didn't happen this morning because as I'm trying to do that, I'm sitting there thinking... How can I hold the wings up? This four-foot cardboard wings and this Modge Podge. I didn't even know what Modge Podge was until Thursday. And so I thank you for that very much. And now I'm going to tell you what we're going to do for the next hour and a half because I didn't have time this morning. All right, so let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this group. I thank you for this church, God. We uh, the story that Mona told it touches us. I think it touches us all because we we oftentimes don't know what we're doing, and I think that's been almost a the beauty of the journey of A&C is not that we've set out with this marvelous plan, but we have just stepped into the doors that you have opened and we've responded with yes. And we have responded with the reality that out of all things, you are love and hope to a world that that desperately longs for love and a world that desperately needs hope. And today we heard that story of hopelessness. So Father, I ask you to just be with us as a church as we, as we move into these new directions. Um, open the, the ears of your people today. Open my... Uh, Open my mouth to speak what you would have me to speak. Father, we love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to give you a rough outline of where we're going today and what we're doing. Um, we're going to do a little bit of a recap from last week, what, what Brandon talked about. But we're going to kind of use it more as a, uh, as a springboard, if you will, in 2 verses 9 through 13. But but we, we we need to grab that part. We'll try to go through that as quick as we can. We'll jump into nine through thirteen. We'll, we'll figure out what Mark is saying uh, to the people of Rome because this is where the letter is written to or the book is written to, and then we'll kind of jump out of the pool, if you will, and talk about what might Mark be saying through the Scripture to us today. Okay. So here's here's some of the things Brandon already talked about last week. As we know, Mark is kind of he's kind of a different. He's a different character. The first time we get a picture of him in the scriptures, he's kind of, I guess, uh, he, he's a fearful person. He's kind of scared. He's kind of skittish. Um, we see him as one who who runs from danger. But, by, but, but all of a sudden, the next time we really hear about him, he has now written a book to a very very persecuted church. Now, what we know is in between uh, the time where we see him as a fearful person and the time he writes this book, Mark is the product of of true discipleship. He starts off being discipled by Barnabas. Barnabas, we know through Scripture, is a very educated man. He's very intelligent. So he pours that into Mark. Then we know for a short segment, Mark is also, uh, he is mentored and apprenticed by Paul for a little bit. And then towards towards the end of things, he is um, discipled, by Peter. What we know also is that he was probably Peter's translator, not just linguistically, but I also think because of the education level he had through Barnabas, he's also one that learned how to uh, learn how to structure his wording in such a way that it made the right type of sense to the audience, if that makes sense. And so, and so this is Mark, and Mark is writing to, uh, he is writing probably right after the death ...of Peter and Paul, but right before the fall of of Jerusalem. And so we have this context that he's writing into, this this angst, almost this kind of apocalyptic, this eschatological, this end-time sense, this end-time urgency that's going on. And Mark is writing his gospel specifically to this church. Here's what we know about the church is... When you go back and look at the book of Romans, Romans is written to a predominantly Gentile church. But there's still a heavy Jewish influence. You know that from chapters 9 on. He, Paul speaks uh, directly to the Jews uh, in, in a lot of different ways. By the time we get to Mark, Mark um, actually leaves out a lot of elements that would have been important to some Jews. And not only that, he is now explaining some words um, that you would not have to explain to a Jewish, a Jewish audience. And so, because of some of the edicts that have passed and everything, we, we have a very, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on in Rome. We have a very small, if any, Jewish population in the church and it's predominantly Gentile. And so, Mark is writing this uh, this gospel into this context and there is this, this angst, if you will, this understanding that something, something very bad is getting ready to happen, even outside of, outside of the persecution. Something big is getting ready to go down. We know this because of the things James was prophesying about, because of the things Jesus was prophesying about. And so some common threads that go through the book of Mark is, number one, Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. It is all throughout this short gospel Mark is wanting to communicate to them, what I'm telling you is urgent and what I'm asking you to do is urgent. This isn't something you can put off. And so he paints Jesus in this picture of a man of action more than a great teacher. He actually kind of summarizes some of Jesus' teachings, leaves some of them out, but always shows him as a man who is on the move. Mark uses the, the phrase good news more than any other writer in the New Testament outside of Paul. Now, what's significant about that is Paul had almost the majority of the New Testament to do that. You have Luke who wrote two books, John who wrote four, and yet Mark is the one who keeps bringing up this idea of good news. So it's, so it's kind of like Mark is saying, Hey, I want to speak good news into your situation, but at the same time I want to talk about how this good news affects you immediately and how you need to respond to it immediately. Are you with me? And so the answer, so the question that Mark is leading with in this first portion of the book is he is wanting to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus specifically to this church and who is Jesus in general? So like I said, we're going to run through pretty quickly, 1 through 8, and then we'll jump into 9 through 13. So, picking up in verse 1, Mark says, The beginning... Of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Mark has packed this. This is full of a lot of information about who Jesus is that his readers would know. First of all, he defines Jesus as the Christ. This was what the Jews would call the Messiah. So he's telling the Jews, hey, this is our king. This is not just a king, this is the king. And then he calls him the son of God. In other words, he's not just a man who is the king, but this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is God come from heaven to earth. He incarnates and he is taking on the position of king. And then not only that, but he gives that description from Isaiah. So at the same time, he's saying, not only is he king, not only is he God-made man coming to orchestrate the rule and reign of God, but he is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies that you heard about while the Jews were still with you. This is who Jesus is. And this is where he begins. But, he, but the way he words that first line is even a little more interesting. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there have been some... Uh, pamphlets, some writings, uh, even some coins that were found back in that time of Mark and Jesus that actually is worded like the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The word gospel is not a Christian word. It is now. When you say gospel, we think of Christianity. But it was not a Christian word. Gospel simply meant this astonishing, not just a you know, I I had a good day, good news, but something earth shattering has happened. Something has come on the scene that is getting ready to change everything that was and begin to remake everything into a new order. And the Romans, the Roman Empire, attributed this idea of gospel to the Roman empires. And so now you've got to remember, the context is you've got this persecuted church and from their point of view their their circumstance or their current reality does not look like Jesus is the king it does not look like his kingdom is the one that is growing rather it looks like caesar is the true king and the kingdom of rome ...is what is winning... And, ...and Mark steps up on the scene... ...with this message of hope... ...and says, no, no, no... ...I know it may look like this... ...I know it may look like Caesar's the true king... ...I know it may look like Rome is truly advancing... ...and he attributes all that Rome gives... ...the deity that Rome gives to Caesar... ...and he points it at Jesus... ...and says, though your circumstances may look like this... ...this is the man... ...and you need to allow that... ...to the rule the way you think... ...in these circumstances... And then he does one more thing, just in this text. The word beginning there is the same Greek word used for beginning in Genesis 1-1 in the Greek uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so he's saying it's even bigger than Rome. It's bigger than your current circumstances. But there is a new beginning that is happening now. You remember the trajectory of the fall that the old Adam did at the beginning well, Jesus has come to reverse the curse. And it is happening now, even though your circumstances don't look like it. He is injecting this idea of hope and a new reality that is much bigger than their current circumstances. Are you with me? Okay. And so then, we jump down in, and we, we won't read it for sake of time, but we, John, we, we jump down into this description of the baptism... And John differentiates between the baptism. Oftentimes when we look at that, we see the, diff, the, the comparison as between water and spirit. Remember that? He says, uh, I baptize you with water, but Jesus baptizes you with, with the spirit. One is coming that will baptize you with the spirit. That's not the, that's not the real comparison. The comparison is, is that John came with a baptism of repentance, and Jesus has come with a baptism of the spirit. And what, what Jesus or what Mark is pulling from is a lot of these Old Testament ideas in which in the, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, it, it tells us that there is one coming. There is, there is this new beginning. There is this new creation that is starting. And, and the way this starts is that God is going to put his spirit into his new people. No longer are his people going to be identified by their ethnicity, by their birthrights, who they were born from or under, but now the people of God are going to be determined solely on whether God's Spirit is in them or not. This is not what John's doing. John is giving a baptism of repentance. The, uh, back up in, in the first part of the section where Isaiah, where uh, Mark quotes Isaiah, that same prophecy is given again in Malachi. Except when it, when, when it gives that, it says that there's going to be this one coming, he's going to prepare the way, and this one that he is preparing the way for is also going to bring this, and I quote, great and terrible day of the Lord. In other words, judgment. Okay? Okay? So John is, he's not, this is not a baptism where he's baptizing them from one people into another people. He is calling Israel, not, not, not other nationalities. He is calling Israel out to himself. And he is saying, I want to get you ready for judgment. Because it's coming on you because of the curse. And then when you're ready for judgment and purity. Then God's going to baptize his new people in the spirit when this new man comes. Are you with me? So this is everything that Mark is saying in those first nine verses. Now, let's pick up in first eight verses. Let's pick up in verse nine. Now, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, this is pretty significant. Because based off of the information that we just received, what does this tell us? Jesus is not just showing up on the scene to set an example for us. That's not all he's doing. He is doing that. That's not all he's doing. There's way more to it. Because remember, this this is a specific baptism. It is about repentance. It is about a new spirit. And it is about judgment. Mark has already told us Jesus is some sort of a new beginning. He is some sort of a new Adam. And so while John is calling forth Israel... It is almost like Jesus, in in action form, steps up and says, I'll take one for the team. Don't pour judgment out on them. I'll take it. I am Israel. I am my people. And I will stand in their place. And I will take judgment in their place. I will take what the curse has delivered. We have this this, uh, theology... In Christianity, calls substitutionary ethology, theology in which the idea is that Jesus takes the place of those of us who are sinners, those of us who are under the curse, which is, which is everybody. It doesn't start at the cross. that starts at the baptism. Jesus is coming on the scene first and foremost saying, I will represent Israel. I am the man. I am the new beginning. I am the new Adam. And before I start my work, I am saying, I will take the curse that is due humanity. Picking up in verse ten, and just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, "You are my one dear son, and you, I take great delight." So here we have this we have this word picture again. Remember back in the garden, the writers of of Genesis, they draw this picture of creation for us. There is this God who is in charge and he is making new things. And there is this active agent, the son or or, or the word. And then there is this spirit that is is hovering, or as some of the actual ancient Jewish rabbis would translate, this spirit that was hovering or hovering fluttering like a dove to make this new creation come out of it. And remember, remember what God said after he made humanity? He said, it is good. Before humanity has a chance to succeed or fail, he looks down and says, it is good. Here we have the father who is bringing something new into being. You have this active agent of the Son. You have this Holy Spirit hovering or fluttering. And before Jesus gets to even heal anybody, before He gets to do the walking on water trick or anything cool like that, the Father looks down and says, It is in you I take delight. So once again, Mark is drawing this new picture that something new is happening and it is happening in this man. He is the new Adam in which all of his nation will come out of. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, enduring temptation from Satan. He was with wild animals and angels were ministering To his needs. Now here's the thing. If you look back in the other gospels, most gospels, most of the writers go to great length to explain what's going on. They define what the temptations look like uh, and they give a lot of human elements to it. In fact, Matthew describes this whole temptation scene in 11 verses. Mark gives us two. Mark seems to not care about what all the temptations were. But But the weird deal is that Mark does that. No other writer does. As he puts this weird phrase in there. He was with the wild animals. Who cares? Right? Who cares? Unless Mark is trying to communicate something. Do you remember at the first temptation? Back in Genesis? It was humanity, the heavenly hosts, the wild animals, and the tempter. Right? And what Mark wants to communicate and pull all the detail out is that here's this new man. And what happens at the temptation? Man falls, sends us under the curse or sends us into the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the wilderness is the place of the curse. It's the place you go after you have fallen away from God. You've got Adam and Eve out of the garden, Cain being sent, the children of Israel. You've got Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but, but there seems to be this connection throughout the Old Testament that the, the place of the curse is the place of the wilderness. And so Jesus is not getting tempted in a new garden. Rather, he goes to the place that we leave off as the new man. And just like Adam, he is there with the heavenly hosts, the beasts of the field or the wild animals, And the tempter. But this time, Adam doesn't submit to the tempter. Jesus passes his temptation and defeats the tempter. And begins his road to the cross. In which he would finalize all the rule of sin on the life of humanity. And he would begin to make all things new. This is what Mark is saying about Jesus. He's saying he's not just some dude. He's not just some prophet or some good teacher. But he is God made man. He is Emmanuel. He is the king who came to reverse everything that Adam did. And he will outlive and outreign not only Rome, but every current circumstance in your life and in my life that seems to say the opposite. So in your notes, on the back of your notes... The conclusion or the summary of the text. Mark is communicating a specific good news. This is not just something general, right? We talked about that. He's writing into a specific context with a specific message. So he is communicating a specific good news to a persecuted people as a message of hope. Through the reminder of who Jesus is. I'm sorry, I missed one, didn't I? Mark is communicating a specific good news to a persecuted people as a message of hope and new beginnings through the reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. Mark is communicating a specific good news to a persecuted people as a message of hope and new beginnings through the reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. So what does that mean for us? In your notes, the first one. Our circumstances do not determine our reality in the light of eternity. Our circumstances, just like Mark was communicating to the Roman church, our circumstances do not determine our reality in the light of eternity. Rather, our our reality is determined by the new beginning initiated by Jesus. Rather, our reality is determined by the new beginning initiated by Jesus. New beginning. We've heard this term in in church history. You've probably used it here. New birth or, or salvation. Here's the promise. That no matter what your current circumstances look like, No matter what your reality seems to be. No matter what hopelessness seems to be in your face. If in your life there has been a new beginning through who Jesus is. That is not your ultimate reality. It may look like it for a moment. And you may not see a light at the end of the tunnel. But the reality is. There has been a new beginning that has started for you. For me. For humanity. And that ultimately wins out. The next one. In the midst of temptations and weakness, we are strengthened through the same spirit that empowered Jesus. In the midst of temptation and weakness, we are strengthened through the same spirit that empowered Jesus. Paul said, it is actually in my weakness that I am made strong. Any of you ever tried in life to try to overcome something? Maybe not even something tangible, but a certain emotion. Anybody ever try that? I, I I wrestle, I'll just be really transparent with you, um, and I probably revealed this when I was getting on to you elementary school teachers. I kind of wrestle with anger a little bit. <laughs> I do, just a little bit. Um, and here's the deal. I have tried every way in the world to get over it. But here's what's funny. As I'm trying to do it my way to get over it, and I get beat up, and I realize I just, I can't do it. I can't re- You know, I would love to take this hate that I'm feeling and point it at somebody else. That's not even right, is it? I I would like to just get over this hate um, that I'm wrestling with or this, this whatever. It's when I get to that point where I realize I can't do it. When I get to the point of admitting my weakness in a situation, it seems like it's then when God is saying, finally. And he sends a spirit. And here's the deal. I don't know what each of you wrestle with. I don't know if there's new things in your life or something that has held on to you for a while. But the promise is the minute you begin to let go and realize that you can't do it, God begins to fill us with his spirit and gets us beyond that. And finally, the last one. Our identity and status is determined by grace. Grace under and through the new Adam rather than the curse under the old Adam. Our identity and status is determined by grace under and through the new Adam rather than the curse under the old Adam. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you have failed. On the flip side, it doesn't matter how you've succeeded or what you've accomplished. Your identity is not tied to that at all. Your identity is tied to that under the old Adam, under the curse. Your identity is tied to what you can or can't do, who you can be or who you can't be, what you can accomplish or can't accomplish. But the hope of Jesus is that no matter how many failures we've had, no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how rich or how poor or how far we fall on the socioeconomic level, that has nothing to do with our status and who we are in Jesus. And this is what Mark is communicating to these people. I know things look very bleak around you, but that is not your reality. And I think before Mark gets into any instruction on what to do, I think the very thing that Mark would want to communicate to Austin New Church in this new setting, on this new venture, is that no matter how many times we might fail, because it's going to happen, no matter how many times we might mess up, it'll happen. No, how many times you feel like you've been let down or let someone down that all of that pales into comparison of who Jesus is in your life let's pray